We're now at Malachi chapter 3, verses 2 to 6, but for context, we'll start at 2.17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Amen. Last time in verses 17, uh, chapter 2, 17, 3, verse 1, we... We spoke of how they have pained God. They weary God, metaphorically speaking, in that they complain and actually justify their evil by saying, God God does good, thinks good, and delights in evildoers. And Malachi and other prophets have warned of the judgment of God, but the judgment of God hasn't come upon us. We're still fat and happy where everything is still fine with us. So that's why they say, where is the God of justice? Well, to answer their objections, to answer their obstinate beliefs, the answer is in chapter 3, 1 to 6. They don't realize that the judgment of God is primarily based upon the first and second comings of Christ. It's based upon the work of Christ. They don't realize that because they're not looking to the future. They're not seeing the unseen truths of the scriptures. They don't put their hope in the future life. They're putting their hope in this life. That's why they're not understanding the true reason for the work of Christ. That's why the work of Christ is introduced. In verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, we have John the Baptist, the messenger, and the one who clears the way before me. He will clear the way before me. We saw last time that this is quoted in various parts in the New Testament, such as Mark chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and many other places, Luke 1, 16 and 17, and Luke chapter 3, and elsewhere, 3, 1 to 14 of, of the book of Luke. So John the Baptist, his ministry is one way they know, they can know, the judgment of God or the justice of God. 
let's turn a couple of pages to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3. John the Baptist and Jesus called him the greatest of all the prophets. Of course, excluding himself because Jesus himself, in a sense, was a prophet. Excluding Jesus himself among regular men, holy men of God, John was the greatest because he's the forerunner of Christ. Well, the greatest of the prophets said this, to warn them about the judgment of God, to show them the justice of God. 3 verse 1, Matthew 3, 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Taken from Isaiah 40, verse 3. 40, verse 3. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt about his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you in water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not even fit to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. It says Holy Spirit and fire. That is Christ will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Further described in verse 12. And his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's Christ who will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John the Baptist, he preached so sternly and firmly against the sins of the people that though there were crowds who came to him, there were also very true believers who followed him. And he made enemies everywhere by preaching against their sins. He was so courageous, he preached against King Herod. King Herod had an unlawful marriage, Mark six fourteen. Which of today's evangelists, which of today's pastors, which of today's professors of the Bible will preach like this against our own rulers, our political and religious rulers. You'll see there's nobody who's, who's doing that today. Look at Mark six fourteen, And King Herod heard of it, for his name had become well known, and people were saying, 
John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and therefore these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he is Elijah, and others were saying, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, he has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. And a strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And immediately she came in haste before the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me right away the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. John the Baptist certainly preached judgment, the justice of God, to such an extent that everybody hated him. Many people hated him. The king and Herodias and Herodias' daughter, they hated him. Hated him to the point of putting him to death. Well, what about Christ? John said Christ would preach and he would have his winnowing fork and gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Was Jesus just as stern and firm? Was Jesus just as clear and confident and courageous in preaching against the sins of the people? Or did Jesus lighten it up? Did Jesus back off? Did Jesus handle it in a more strategic way, in a more winsome way, in a more charming way? Did Jesus handle things that way? Matthew 15, Matthew 15. In Matthew 15, 1 to 20, we'll read in the middle, Matthew 15, 1 to 20. Our Lord confronts the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees who follow the traditions of men, the free will traditions of men, but refuse to obey the commandments of God. And he confronts it. And we pick up the confrontation in verse 7, 15, 7, Matthew 15, 7. 
You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as their doctrines the precepts of men. And he called to himself the multitude and said to them, Hear and understand, not what enters into the mouth defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Jesus was the same as John. He called the people hypocrites. And even his own disciples could not tolerate hearing these words because they were saying, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? Master, teacher, lighten it up. You're, you're making enemies. Basically, that's what they're doing. But Jesus did not succumb to that temptation of his own disciples. He actually turned it up. He, he turned up the heat and said, every plant It says, but he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. He gave a very strong message, just as strong as John the Baptist, because both spoke the word of the Lord. The Lord himself spoke his own word, and John spoke the word of the Lord. Another example of Christ speaking this way to cut against the sins of the people. It's in Luke 11. Luke 11. Luke 11 in verses 37 to 54. Luke 11, 37 to 54. In the first part, we have Christ as a guest at the luncheon table of a Pharisee. He is the guest. He's a visitor to the house of a Pharisee. In modern um, etiquette, modern common courtesy, when you go to someone's house, you're never supposed to offend your host, right? Especially while you're eating. Don't offend your host, correct? That's modern courtesy. But what if the host is sinning? What are we supposed to do? Just avoid the subject, leave it alone, wait until dessert has been served, or wait until later after the dinner and then ask for another separate meeting without any food involved. What are you supposed to do when it's happening then and there at the table when you're eating food? Well, the Pharisees offended, so Jesus, he denounces the Pharisee and all the Pharisees in 37 to 44. But Jesus has another opportunity to back off, to mitigate his strong words, to take take out some of the bite, some of the sting, some of the harshness of his words. He has the opportunity again to mitigate his strong words, (coughs) words of judgment, words of justice. But here we pick it up in 45. But one of the lawyers said to him in reply, teacher, When you say this, you insult us too. 
But he said, Woe to you, lawyers, as well. For you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed him. Consequently, you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason, also, the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute, in order that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in, you hindered. And when he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. In modern estimation, modern Christian estimation, Christianity would say, in their books of evangelism and apologetics, in their books on the defense of the faith and how to persuade people, how to preach the gospel, how to preach sermons, they would say, Jesus was unsuccessful. Jesus did it wrong. They would either say it explicitly or implicitly that Jesus did it the wrong way. That's not the way to preach. That's not the way to evangelize. That's not the way to defend the faith. Because the result was they were very hostile, questioned him on many subjects, plotted <coughs> against him, and eventually they killed him. So he was, Jesus was entirely unsuccessful in preaching justice or judgment. However, Jesus will have the last word. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians 1. We read from 6 to 12. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 to 12. Context starts in verse 3. The context of persecution. The Thessalonians are being persecuted. And he assures them that God will take care of them. And this is how God will take care of them. We pick it up in verse 6. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. To this end also we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, hopefully we have dissipated and destroyed arguments that mischaracterize 
the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus our Lord. They certainly preached a very firm and harsh message. Both of them did. And Jesus ultimately will have the last word of judgment or justice against evildoers. Jesus will, according to 2 Thessalonians 1. Okay, so in anticipation, Malachi. Malachi's version of the Jesus we just learned from the New Testament. Here is Malachi's description of Jesus. Verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? With this question, this is a rhetorical question. Is Malachi saying, well, everybody's going to endure? Or is he saying, nobody can endure, or very few can endure? He's not saying everybody's going to endure. The rhetorical question has, it begs the answer, nobody, or only those who receive his mercy, which is just a few compared to the many. That's why he says, who can endure the day of his coming? When he comes, how many people are actually going to stick with him? You remember Jesus fed the 5,000 men plus women and children? You remember that Jesus fed the 4,000 plus women and children? Matthew 15, uh, Matthew 14 and 15 explain this. The 5,000 and the 4,000. He fed them. But why was it that there were only only 120 disciples in the upper room waiting for the day of Pentecost. 120 out of literally tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people who witnessed his miracles and heard his sermons. Why only 120? That's in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 and verse 15. 115, at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together. 120 only. Acts 1, 15. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, after his resurrection, at one point, 1 Corinthians 15, 6, at one point, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. 500 at one time after his resurrection at that point. So, but that's a small number still compared to the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people who heard him and saw his miracles, or at least the result of his miracles. That's not many people. So not many people endured him in his first coming. And as well, with the 5,000, it actually tells us who or how many were left. John 6, John 6, 66. John 6, 66 to 67. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus said, therefore, to the 12, you do not want to go away. Also, do you? 5,000 plus women and children. Many of them followed him across the Sea of Galilee into the synagogue of Capernaum. But that large number, however many there were, they withdrew, it says. They didn't follow Christ anymore because he was teaching them a tough message. 
a tough love message. And so they withdrew. So Jesus turns to his 12 and challenges them whether they want to leave too. And Peter, of course, Simon Peter, gives the correct answer. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. Verse 68. So not many endured Christ. They like to say he was a popular preacher. He was famous. No, he has become famous because he's become a source of revenue. But he wasn't famous in the true sense at the time. If he didn't perform all those miracles, do you think that many people would have stuck with him? Would have paid attention to him? No, it wouldn't have happened. It would have been similar to John the Baptist. For a time, what is this new new, uh, prophet? What is this new thing that he's teaching? So for the novelty of it, they would have followed him for a short time, but not for the substance of it. So very few endured the day of his coming. Okay, and who can stand when he appears? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Who can stand when he appears? Remember whenever Jesus showed a glimpse of his glory, it actually made the people afraid? Peter, James, and John at the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, Matthew 17, 1 to 8, when they saw the transformed, transfigured Christ, it says this, 17, 6, and when the disciples heard this, they fell, saw it, and heard the voice of God the Father. They fell on their faces and were much afraid. They fell on their faces and were much afraid. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Another glimpse of the glory of Christ, which met fear, was Simon Peter. Luke 5. Luke 5. When Jesus performed the miracle of catching fish in the net after his disciples could not overnight. Luke 5, 1 to 11. When the fish were caught because Jesus said the word and Simon Peter saw it, notice what he does. <coughs> Luke 5, 8. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Depart from me. Go away from me, Jesus, because I am a sinful man. He saw a glimpse of the glory of Christ when he appeared, and he could not stand before Christ. He had to fall down at his feet. Is this not what the disciples did after Jesus rose from the dead? and they realized who it was. It says in Matthew 28, Matthew 28, verse 9, And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Verse 10, Matthew 28, 10. 
Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they shall see me. They were afraid and they worshipped him. They had to fall on their faces, fall at his feet to worship him. So they could not stand either, literally. They could not stand when he appeared. He's described by Malachi like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He is like the fire of a furnace of a goldsmith. A goldsmith, he needs to have a furnace that has very, very strong fire, uh, intense heat. So he puts the gold in there and the gold is often mixed with other Elements And those other elements, the alloy or dross, they uh, flow away and then just the gold remains in the fire. So the more he does it, the longer he does it, the higher the heat, the gold comes out more pure. Jesus is like that. Our sins are like the impure elements mixed with the gold. That's the way our sins are. And Jesus, he has a fire the fire of his judgment, his justice, it's so intense, he's going to be able to purify us and get rid of our sins. So that's one illustration in verse 2, which he picks up in verse 3. And he will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver, a smelter or purifier of silver, like a goldsmith or a silversmith. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. So Jesus has an intense, hot fire of judgment. Is that not what we read in 2 Thessalonians 1? He's going to come in flaming fire. He's going to come in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who Do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Jesus is like that fire. Jesus is like that fire. And he is like soap, a fuller or a laundryman's soap. When we go to a laundryman or to a fuller for for them to clean our clothes, do we pay them money So that if we have a white shirt that has some spots on it and we pay him the money and then he he says he cleans it, but then he gives the white shirt back to us, but the spots are still there or mostly there, will we be happy? No. We know he didn't do what was right with the shirt to get rid of the stain on the white shirt. If we pay him, we want him to do what's right and to use the best soap to get rid of our stain. That's why we pay him. Correct? Well, Jesus is the best laundryman. Whatever um, stains of sin we have in our soul, he is able to wipe clean by his blood. He is able to cleanse us and make us white as wool. Jesus is. Isaiah said this, Isaiah chapter 1. He actually said both. He puts the two together as well. That he has fire 
and he has the best soap. Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. 1.18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. That is, the Lord has the ability to take a red stain on a white shirt or a woolen shirt a white stain or a, uh, a red stain on a white shirt and remove it and make it as white as snow. The Lord has that ability. 125, Isaiah 125. I will also turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and will remove all your alloy. The dross or alloy of the metals will be melted or smelted away in the hot fire as with lye, the lye of soap. Like he can clean and make white our garments, so he will do for us. We already spoke of the fire of Christ from Second Thessalonians chapter 1. How about the fire of Christ from the book of Revelation. His fiery wrath. Revelation 6.16. Revelation 6.16. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? There's our phrase from Malachi, Malachi 3, verse 2. Who is able to stand when the wrath of Christ and God the Father is inflicted on wicked men? How about also Revelation 19? Revelation 19, 19.11, Revelation 19.11 to 16. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. He says in righteousness he judges. He's a God of judgment. Well, who is this that he's describing? Verse 12, and his eyes are a flame of fire and his, upon his head are many diadems and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's Christ with the eyes 
a flame of fire. His eyes are a flame of fire. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. He also has the perfect soap. Jesus also has the perfect soap. Revelation 7, 14. Actually, let's read from 7, 12. 7, 12 to 17. And our verse will be verses 13 and 14. 7, 12. Saying, this is the multitude in heaven, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And from where have they come? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There we have it. The robes became white by the soap of the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb is like a soap that purifies and cleanses and removes the stain of our sins. 15, for this reason they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple and he he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun beat down on them nor any heat, for the Lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd and shall guide them to springs of the water of life, and God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. Malachi also tells us in verses 3 and 4 that Christ will do so, he will purify the sons of Levi, and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Because of Christ, because of his ministry, this was fulfilled in different ways immediately on the day of Pentecost and after the day of Pentecost. But it is continually being fulfilled. On the day of Pentecost, what happened? Who do we have visiting Jerusalem? The Jews from all over the world. It's one of the festivals when the capital city and the temple would have been highly populated by Jews, not only the locals, but the foreigners who lived in other countries. And when the sermon of Peter was preached and the Holy Spirit came upon the people, it says in Acts 2, 41, about 3,000 souls were saved. Acts 2, 41. Out of that large crowd. And they were mostly Jews. Also, Acts chapter 6 Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, 6, 7. This includes later the priests who are in the tribe of Levi, as he says, as Malachi says. Acts 6, verse 7. And the word of God kept on spreading 
and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. A great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. The inhabitants of Jerusalem and a great many of the priests, just as Malachi said. But this also continues over the centuries where true converts are made because of the true preaching of Christ. After they are converted, after they are purified, then what? According to verses 3 and 4. What is the sequence? First, purification. First, refinement. First, cleansing. Then, pleasant sacrifices. Our sacrifices before conversion are worthless, are corrupt, are an abomination to God. They are not offered in faith, and whatever is not offered in faith is sin, Romans 14, 23. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him, Hebrews eleven six. Before our conversion, our sacrifices to God are like a filthy garment, Isaiah 64, 6 and 7. Isaiah says, a filthy garment. Uh, but here he says, after they've been purified in verse 3, and four, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Verse four, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Psalm 51 preaches this. Psalm 51 preaches the same. And actually, the prophets are teaching this lesson again and again because the hard-headed, stubborn people refuse to understand this truth. They think that when they come to worship, that itself should be enough for God. Otherwise, God, leave me alone. But no. Look at Psalm 51. Remember, this is a psalm of repentance. And then it says this. Psalm 51, we'll read 14 to 19. 14 to 19. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. God wants first the sacrifice, or he first wants the broken spirit, broken and contrite heart. That's the kind of sacrifice he wants first. He wants righteousness in the inner man first. He wants us to praise him and then offer the sacrifices of burnt offering, whole burnt offering, young bulls on the altar of God. 
That's the sequence, not the opposite. Malachi preaches the same. And actually, even many ways, the New Testament preaches the same. In the book of Ephesians, did the apostle not in the first three chapters explain how God saved us? And even actually chapter 1, verse 1 to 416. And then when we reach chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, what are we supposed to be just as Christ was? Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Christ offered himself to God for us. So then, once we are redeemed, we ought to offer ourselves to God. As it says in Romans 12, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Malachi believes, just like the rest of the Bible, we have to first be regenerated before we can have faith and repentance and offer sacrifices to God. Malachi is teaching the same. All right, well, what are the specific sins, the common sins of people? What are the specific common sins of people that would make their sacrifices otherwise vain, useless, a stench in the nostrils of God. What are the sins of men that make the sacrifices, unless converted, unacceptable to God? Malachi 3.5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. Who's speaking? Christ is still speaking. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. The judgment they asked about in 2.17 He's speaking about it right here. Judgment. And I will be a swift witness against. So he's going to draw near and be a swift witness. Not, Not a cowardly witness. Not a timid witness. Not a fearful witness. But a swift witness. A witness who has the courage and who has the conviction, who knows he actually knows what happened in the incident. And he's ready in the court of God to speak up and tell God what actually happened. Jesus is saying he is that that kind of witness. A swift witness. Against whom? The sorcerers. What's a sorcerer? A sorcerer consults the invisible world of evil spirits, demons, Satan. That's what the sorcerer does. The sorcerer uses illegitimate, wrong, sinful, evil ways of determining the future or of of predicting the future or of making the future occur 
according to his wishes. This is what witches and warlocks do. Okay? So sorcerers. There cannot be a Christian who is a sorcerer. A Christian sorcerer. Those don't exist. Not in the Bible. In the world, every, a lot of people think that they are Christian sorcerers. But not in the Bible. Also against the adulterers. What's an adulterer? A man who marries or, or who has sexual relations with a woman who's not his wife. If he's married or if she's married, that's adultery. But if they're both unmarried, then that would be fornication. It's still sin because it's not between husband and wife. Against those who swear falsely, to swear falsely. Somebody who swears but does not intend, swears a vow, swears an oath to God, I will do such and such, or I will not do such and such. And then he breaks his word. He's swearing falsely, and he will certainly be punished by God. So we should never swear unless we know we're going to do what we say. Never swear falsely. It's also false to swear in the name of the Lord when there is no biblical basis to swear in the name of the Lord. Such as, what if somebody swears, um, I swear adultery is not a sin? Well, it says right there, adultery. I swear sorcery is not a sin, but it just says right there, sorcery is a sin. So if he says, I swear in the name of the Lord, adultery is not a sin, and I'm not sinning, then that's taking God's name in vain. That's a false oath. He's saying it falsely, swearing falsely. How about those who oppress the wage earner in his wages? Yes, I told you I was going to give you $100 today, but actually it's going to be just 75 Actually, I told you I was going to pay you today, but actually I'm going to pay you next week. This is the oppression of the wage earner in his wages. That's wrong. Whatever you said you're going to do, that's what you should do. The widow. The widow. A widow, it's usually a woman in the Bible, although a widower is a man. A widow is a woman who was married, but her husband died. When the husband dies, her provision, her protection, and her pastor has died. So she's left all alone. And there are people who have lots of power, lots of money, and evil, and they love to oppress widows because they know widows are helpless. Widows don't have anybody around, usually not many people around. And a woman is more helpless than a man, the widower. Okay? The orphan. Who does the orphan not have? The orphan does not usually have a father. And if he has a father, what will the father do for the child? Provide for the child, protect the child, and preach the word of truth to the child. But if the orphan does not have a father to protect, provide, and preach, then those people who love to exploit children and say, hey, come over here. I've got some candy for you. And then kidnap the child. 
That's exploiting. That's oppressing the orphan. Doing wrong to the orphan. And those who turn aside the alien. An alien in the land, if he is there rightfully, he's usually not the most stable or richest person when he first comes. After a while, if he's successful, he can be wealthy enough and stable enough in a new country, but not initially. So when he comes first, it's easy for the citizen of the country to exploit, to take advantage of the alien, the alien who's rightfully here, not wrongfully here, illegally, but legally. That shouldn't happen either. Aliens should not be oppressed. And all of these show that the people do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. When people practice these sins, they cannot say, yeah, I fear God, I love God, I know God. Yes, I fear God. But adultery is not a sin. Sorcery is not a sin. Swearing falsely is not a sin. Oppression is not a sin. So stop bothering me. Stop telling me it's a sin. I fear God. But here, if they practice these sins, they do not fear God, God says. So we have a clear way to test them. They are tested as false, as liars. Then verse 6. Why should we know that all of this is true? Why should we put our confidence in this? Why should we believe everything that is just said here? Verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. The sons of Jacob, the sons of Israel, he's talking about Israel or the Jews. God could easily have destroyed them the first time they sinned. How about in Exodus 32, which wasn't the first time as a nation in the wilderness, but Exodus 32, they made a golden calf. God could have easily wiped out every single one of them and made a nation out of Moses and Moses' family. But Moses interceded and said, no, Lord, don't do that. Otherwise, they will say you were unable in the wilderness to deliver your people. That's why you killed them all. So don't let the nations say anything like that, that you don't have any power, God. Exodus 32. God could have easily wiped them all out. But why did he not wipe them out? Why did he not destroy them all? He didn't destroy them all because his word does not change. He intended to use the nation in certain ways, especially for Jesus Christ to come from that nation. And he had to come from the tribe of Judah So God could not have wiped out the whole tribe of Judah and Moses was from the tribe of Levi. And Moses knew that. He wrote Genesis 49.10. He knew that. So God's word does not change because God does not change. And this should be our confidence. We shouldn't be complaining when we shouldn't Uh, invent an idol of a God who changes his mind. God does not literally change his mind. Figuratively, yes, but not literally. He does not change his mind. How do we know this? The book of Numbers. Numbers 23, 19. Numbers 23, 19. 
God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it, or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? God's not a man. He doesn't lie. He doesn't repent. When he speaks, he'll do it. He'll make it good. He will do what he says. 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15, 29. And also, 1 Samuel 15, 29. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. The New Testament teaches likewise. Hebrews chapter 1. This is God the Father speaking about his Son, Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1. We'll read 10 to 12. Hebrews 1, 10 to 12. And you, Lord... That is the Father saying this to the Son. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all become old as a garment, and as a mantle you will roll them up. As a garment they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Christ remains the same. The earth changes and will be transformed, but not Christ. He'll always remain God and with all the attributes of God. Hebrews 6.13. Hebrews 6.13. This will show us how it's related to our faith. As Malachi is saying, so here in Hebrews 6, he'll say the same. How it relates to our faith in the true nature and the true work of God. Hebrews 6.13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves and with them, An oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement. We who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. God's word is certain, and it doesn't change. And when he swears an oath, to intensify how serious he is about it. He wants us to know God is unchangeable. His character, his word, his promises. So believe in them. His promises for salvation and his warnings for judgment. 
believe in all of them. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.